The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right, welcome back. So, um, just wanted to give you a brief history of the particular lineage of nonviolence that I teach because nonviolence is a big umbrella and there's a lot of, many people have mentioned nonviolent communication and um, people may also be familiar with Alternatives to Violence Project and there's Gandhian nonviolence, of course, and there's many different things that fall under that umbrella. And the stuff that I teach is mostly grounded in a particular lineage called Kingian Nonviolence Conflict Reconciliation, uh, which comes out of the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King. And several of you in your introduction circles mentioned things about conflict resolution. We're not going to be talking about conflict resolution here. Um, it's part of what we'll talk about. But one of, um, we have teams, the organization I work with, we have teams of nonviolence trainers within incarcerated populations in several prisons and, and county jails throughout Northern California. And one of them once said that resolving a conflict is about fixing issues and reconciling a conflict is about repairing relationships. And oftentimes in our society, when there's a conflict, we figure out how to resolve the issue. Like, oh, well, you go that way and you go that way, or you hurt me, so you do this for me, or you pay me this amount in restitution. And we don't do the hard work of repairing relationships that were damaged. And nonviolence ultimately is about repairing relationships. And fixing issues is oftentimes a prerequisite for that. Like, you, you can't repair a relationship with someone who's still hurting you. But it's not enough to just fix the issues. We need to bring reconciliation. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King said that the, the aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of beloved community, while the aftermath of violence is tragic bitterness. Right? So our, our goal is the creation of beloved community and the creation of relationships. And the legacy of Kingian nonviolence begins on the morning of April 4th of 1968, uh, where my mentor, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who I was just spent the week with in Rhode Island, was in Dr. Mo uh, Martin Luther King's motel room with him that morning. Um, at the time, Dr. Lafayette was the national coordinator for the original Poor People's Campaign, which was the last campaign that King was leading. And as Dr. Lafayette was leaving King's motel room, Dr. King called out to him, and he said, you know, Bernard, the next movement that we need to build after the Poor People's Campaign is a movement to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence. And he says that, he didn't quite understand what King meant, specifically by institutionalizing nonviolence, but he just figured they'd finish the conversation the next time, and so he took off, and about five hours later, Dr. King was shot, so they never got to finish that conversation. So Dr. Lafayette calls those the final marching orders of Dr. Martin Luther King. It's the last thing that King ever asked any of his top lieutenants to do, is to figure out a way to institutionalize nonviolence conflict reconciliation. So he worked over the years to create this training curriculum called Kingian Nonviolence Conflict Reconciliation as a way to take the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King and bring them into the various institutions throughout our country, whether it's IMC here in Redwood City or high schools or law enforcement, uh, law enforcement agencies, prisons, media. Um, the idea is that Things like racism and white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, all of these forms of systemic violence have been institutionalized throughout our society, right? And we're constantly being reinforced with that message even when we don't know it. So our purpose is to institutionalize its antidote, 
to go into the various institutions of this country and, and to infuse them with the practices of nonviolence conflict reconciliation so that we can begin to practice something new. Uh, there's a beautiful quote that comes from an ancient Greek soldier who once said that we don't rise to the level of our expectation, we fall to the level of our training. Oftentimes we have these wonderful expectations about how we want to relate to each other in our communities, but because the institutions in our society are constantly training us to perpetuate racism, to perpetuate sexism and patriarchy, all of these things, we kind of go back to our default, right? And so the work of institutionalizing nonviolence is to infuse our institutions with the antidote to violence so that we're constantly being reinforced with that, so that our training changes. Now, um, there's another... His name is Dr. Bernard Lafayette. He has a book called In Peace and Freedom. And one of the things that I really uh, admire about Dr. Bernard Lafayette is he is the co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the youth arm of the civil rights movement. He was one of the original organizers in Selma, Alabama. Many of us have seen the movie Selma. Dr. King went there years before the events of that movie to kind of like do the groundwork to allow that campaign to happen. He was the national coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, and nobody knows about him. Because for him, it's never been about putting his name out there, but just about... He says the, the, the sign of a great leader is when you're able to lead people without people being, without people even knowing that they're being led, right? And he was always the guy in the back doing all of that leadership. Um, so I've had the privilege to spend a lot of time with him over the years. Excuse me. Did you say institutionalize and internationalize? Yeah, bring it all over. So there's another beautiful Zen teaching that I love that says words are fingers pointing at the moon, but it is not the moon itself. Right? We use words that are just, at the end of the day, like sounds that we make with our vocal cords to try to communicate, to point at something, right? And oftentimes in our society, we end up arguing over which finger to use to point at the thing, as opposed to trying to understand the thing. Like we hear a word and it's like, no, that's not what you're supposed to say, or that's, that's a terrible word, or um, as opposed to really trying to understand um, the message that we're trying to convey with the use of these words. And so I want to um, talk a little bit about the word nonviolence, which is a very loaded and misunderstood word. And I want to talk a little bit about the concept of peace. And I want to start with this. What is the difference between these two images? You can call them out. Pink bird, butterfly, and the color on the, the post there. Next one's a little bit more complicated. There's like eight or nine differences. So call them out as you see them. What is the difference between these two images? Window. Window. Third apple. Third apple. Number of flowers. Number of flowers. I don't know if you notice all of that. The, the color on the suspenders are slightly different. It's a little bit hard to see. So last one. What is the difference between these two? The hyphen, right? Some people use the hyphen when they write nonviolence. Some people don't. Sometimes people use it. Sometimes they don't. I actually noticed in the flyer for this event the hyphen was used. Does the hyphen change the meaning of the word in a significant way? Sometimes? You don't think so? Do, do you want to share a little bit about why? Oh, hold on. Why do you think it makes a difference? For me, it makes a difference, like, 
we start to see a lot of words that were hyphened mm -hmm. that people put together. Like mm. it feels like it's a, it's a tendency. Uh, and it, it has, to me, my visceral reaction is, is it has more power. Uh, Which has more power? When it's linked together. Mm. Um, you know, for example, the word that you start seeing a lot is human kindness. Mm -hmm. In one word, it's, it has a much bigger impact mm -hmm. than two words. Uh, I think nonviolence, it, it, when I look at this slide, um, the fact that there is no iPhone, mm -hmm. it's already one entity. Yeah. Um, there isn't two things that we're trying to put together. Uh, so it, it's just more unified. That's exactly it. So when you put the hyphen in the word, what does it do to the word? Divides it. it divides it, right? All this says is something is not violent. That's an adjective. The idea that nonviolence is about not being violent is the biggest and most dangerous misunderstanding of the idea of nonviolence. Right? A lot of people think as long as I'm not being violent, then I'm practicing nonviolence. And that is a very dangerous misunderstanding of the concept of nonviolence. Um, I live in Oakland in a neighborhood called Funktown. This is the view from my kitchen window. It's a beautiful neighborhood. I've been there almost 10 years. There's seven languages that are spoken on that corner. Right? It's one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Oakland. It's also a neighborhood that has a lot of challenges. People fighting and yelling and screaming. It's just a daily occurrence, day and night. About seven years ago, I was taking a nap, um, and I was woken up by a commotion that was happening right outside of my window. And it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and a couple were screaming at each other. And because this is such a normalized thing in my neighborhood, I was just trying to ignore it and go back to sleep. But this fight kept getting louder, and it kept getting louder, and it kept getting worse. And I finally got up out of my bed and looked down the window. And right below my window, uh, though I live on the second floor, there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat. And she wasn't just getting beaten. She was screaming for help. So I jumped up out of my bed, and I put on my shoes, and I ran downstairs, opened up the gate. And by this point, they had gone across the street to the other corner, and it was still going on. And I ran across the street, and I broke up this fight. By the time I got down there... About 15 of my neighbors had heard the commotion, and they had all come outside, and they were just standing around watching this woman get beat, not doing anything to help. And I always argue that all of my neighbors who were just watching this woman get beat were practicing non-hyphen violence, right? They were explicitly being not violent. And you could even make the argument that I was being more violent than my neighbors were because I had to use a limited amount of physical force to separate the two parties. And I might have hurt somebody in the process, right? So if our understanding of nonviolence is simply the, the absence of violence, specifically the absence of physical forms of violence, then you see how, how dangerous of a misunderstanding it is. Like, I live in Oakland where we're seeing increases in homelessness day by day. And to say, you know what, that's none of my business, would be non-hyphen violent, right? To see the Me Too movement and violence against women all throughout the world and say that's none of my business would be non-hyphen violent. To see environmental destruction and climate change going on and to say that's none of my business would be non-hyphen violent. Non-violence is not about what not to do. But it's about when you see violence and injustice, what are you going to do about it, 
right? It's a proactive thing about what you're going to do to transform violence and injustice as opposed to just saying, I'm not going to be violent and just be a bystander and watch violence and injustice occurring, right? Nonviolence is about what to do. It's not about what not to do. Sure. Um, yeah, if you could grab the mic. Uh, my name's Rilla again, uh, and I'm sorry I'm having a hard time focusing on what you're, you're sharing. Um, have you defined violence? We have not. Um, okay. In a two-day workshop, we, we do an activity specifically around that, so I can say a couple words on that. Yeah, well, you're talking about the word and whether it's divided or yep. whether you're not or whether you are, and it's like, okay, how about we have a shared understanding of what violence is? Um, in the Kingian curriculum, we define violence as physical or emotional harm. Two more definitions that I really love. Um, one comes from Marshall Rosenberg. Um, many of you mentioned nonviolent communication. He says violence is the tragic expression of unmet needs. Right? That as human beings, we all share universal human needs. Needs for connection, needs to be seen, um, needs for, for relationship and for peace. And when those needs aren't met, sometimes we choose poor strategies to get them met. So if I'm not feeling heard, I may scream at somebody, and it's a poor strategy, but it's ultimately like I'm trying to get a need met that is a universal need that we all share. Um, and another time I was at a workshop with a, a, working with young people and one, one girl, we challenged people to come up with a, a definition of violence in four words or less, and a girl came up with a one-word definition. She said, violence is painful. And I think if we over-intellectualize it in the way that we all do, um, we can think of things that are painful that may not be considered violent. And at the same time, when a young girl says violence is painful, everyone in the room knows exactly what she's talking about, right? So a lot of the work of, of movement building is about being able to articulate issues, not intellectually, but in a way that really just cuts through the intellect and speaks to the heart. And so I really like that. It's just that simple definition of violence is painful also. Um, this understanding of nonviolence as just not being violent also leads to a very dangerous misunderstanding of the concept of peace. And for that, I want to share the story of Arthurine Lucy, one of the many, many unsung heroes of the movement, specifically one of the many, many unsung women in the movement, who if you know the history of the civil rights movement, it was almost always women that had the, the courage to be the first person to actually do something about injustice. And then the male ministers came in and took leadership over the movement. Um, and Arthurine Lucy was one of those people. She was the first black student ever to go to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Arthurine. Yes, A-U-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. -E. Like authorin, but it's spelled authorine. Um, what do you think the environment of that campus was like the first day she showed up? This was in the mid-1950s in Alabama, right? Tuscaloosa. These are some of the images of what happened on that day. A riot broke out. The KKK came and burnt a cross on campus. A mob surrounded the car she was traveling in, and people climbed up on top of it. What do you think the school did to respond to this violence? Oh, they did no, they did something. They did something not good. <laughs> they did something. What did they do? Did they nope. They, not allow her to leave? they threw her out of the school. They said, your presence is causing a threat to the security of our school, so you need to leave. So they expelled her. This was after Brown versus the Board of Ed, so they couldn't throw her out because of her race. So they said, you're the reason why all this violence is happening. 
So we need to protect our school, so you need to leave. The next day, she wasn't on campus anymore, so the riots had stopped. Local newspaper ran this headline. Things are quiet in Tuscaloosa today. There is peace on the campus of the University of Alabama. In response to this sermon, I mean, in response to this incident, Dr. King gave one of my favorite sermons of all time. And the sermon is, ta- is called When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. Right? One of the greatest peacemakers we've ever known gave a sermon called When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. And in that sermon, he said that what happened on that campus wasn't a real peace. He called it a negative peace, which is the absence of violence that comes at the expense of justice. Right? It is quiet and calm, just like if someone is screaming in my face and I punch them and knock them unconscious, it's quiet, right? I guarantee you the moment after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, things were really quiet and calm, but a far cry from peace, right? It creates the sense of quiet and calm at the expense of justice by sweeping issues under the rug. This is why we justify going to war to create peace, right? Because if we just kill all the bad people, then we'll have peace. Same thing with mass incarceration. If we just lock up all the bad people, then we'll have peace. Same thing with the militarization of the police. If the Black Lives Matter protesters were just shut up, then we would have peace. Dr. King said that if black people accepted second-class citizenship, things would be quieter in the cities because they wouldn't be out there protesting. Right, And also a really common form of negative peace that is very pervasive in meditation centers and many of our own families, in uh, places of higher education, in corporate work environments, is the sense of negative peace that, that, that is so pervasive because we're told that bringing up issues that are difficult to talk about will create tension, so you're just supposed to suck it up, right? Japan, where I was born, is a country that loves negative peace. We have very few homicides, but one of the highest suicide rates in the entire world because we're a very conflict-averse society, and there's a lot of things that we need to be talking about, but we don't know how, right? We, We like to avoid conflict and pretend that everything is good, so we just bury it and repress it until it explodes in the form of suicide or alcoholism or domestic violence. And then when those things happen, we don't like to talk about it. We pretend it's not happening, right? I was just in a workshop um, a couple of days ago in Rhode Island, and uh, we had a guest speaker come. And towards the end of his presentation, myself and, and the guest speaker had this interaction that I felt like it felt really condescending to me. And so rather than like just holding that in, after the presentation, I went and talked to him and told him specifically, I thought you were being really condescending to me. And not as like a F you, you condescending like person. But for me, it was like, I need you to know that that's how your communication and the way you cut me off landed on me because I need you to grow so that you don't do that to somebody else, right? And it wasn't an easy conversation. Like it would have been much easier for me to just ignore everything that happened. But the act, the, 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 the work of nonviolence is about learning to have those difficult conversations, right? And not ignoring them. So if those things are negative peace, then positive peace is a justice, is a peace that has justice for all people that builds towards reconciliation and beloved community. This is not a peaceful image, but this is what it took 
in the 1950s and 60s to try to get one step closer to peace. I was in a Standing Rock a couple years ago doing a lot of disruptive direct actions, right? Because that's what it takes to create peace. I was also part of the, the Bay Bridge shutdown a few years ago on the San Francisco Bay Bridge for Black Lives Matter. Again, it caused disruption because that's the point of nonviolence oftentimes is to shake things up and to force conversations that aren't happening. This image, not a peaceful image, right? This is what happened in Baltimore after Freddie Gray was, was killed by the police. This is not a peaceful image. But one of the, the, the hardest things for me during these uprisings in Baltimore was when I read an article where the, um, Ray Lewis, who was a former football player, he was quoted as saying that the protesters need to be peaceful. And I get where he was coming from because as a nonviolence trainer, I know rioting doesn't get us closer to justice, right? And at the same time, I think what this country needs to understand is that these young people, like, this is what happens when you don't give people peace for 400 years, right? These young people are rioting because they are sick of the violence that their communities have had to live with for 400 years. And they have, like, violence is the tragic expression of unmet needs. They are expressing a need for peace. They are saying we are sick and tired of the violence and the poverty and the racism that our communities have had to live with for 400 years. Our communities have never known peace on these lands. And as tragic an expression as this is, it is a yearning for peace, right? People riot when they are sick and tired of the violence that their communities have had to deal with. And so oftentimes violence is the tragic expression of an unmet need. Dr. Lafayette says, violence is the language of the inarticulate. That when we have a need for healing, that when we have a need to be seen, that when we have a need for our pain to be validated, and we don't have articulate ways of expressing those needs, this is what happens, right? And the last slide that I want to show on this is Dr. King was arrested, you know, 30 times throughout his career, and many of those times he was charged with disturbing the peace, right? One of the greatest peacemakers our country has ever known was oftentimes accused of disturbing the peace. And so the work of nonviolence, like we're oftentimes accused of disturbing peace because it looks like we're creating tension, but we're not disturbing peace, we're disturbing complacency, Right? We're disturbing the normalization of violence. Like when we have to accept violence as normal, when there's tension in this room or in our families, and we, we have to like just suck it up because it's awkward to talk about it, we need to use nonviolence to disturb that complacency and say, no, we need to learn to have these conversations as uncomfortable and as awkward as it may be. Like Narali was saying, peace is a messy process. When violence and tension becomes the norm, peace is by nature going to be a very disruptive process. And that's why so much of the work of nonviolence, whether it's in our homes and our families, or whether it's in society, it's the practice of having those awkward and difficult conversations. Sometimes it requires me going to a speaker and saying, hey, I thought you were being really condescending. Sometimes it requires us to use civil disobedience to shake up the, 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 the kind of complacency of a nation. But we're not disturbing the peace. We're trying to create it, 
right? And peace is a messy process. And so with that, I want to turn it over to Norali for a little bit more of that kind of. Thank you. This is really brilliant. Thank you, Kazu. Every time I see this, it moves me. And to quote you, something you said was also conflict is generative. And also, I feel one of the uh, values of uh, doing the work uh, in the community, in the Gandhian community, living at the Gandhi ashram, uh, following the ashram guidelines. And some of it, like, showed me that uh, what is the skillful means of doing that? And also something like really interesting, I remember uh, asking a Gandhian elder and uh, in in my own sense trying to understand what nonviolence was. And he defined nonviolence as fearlessness. And I, I I feel like that was one of the uh, like what, that was one of a big turning points of my life to hear that. Uh, and and as Kazu said, like it uh, there is a big difference between non-hyphen violence and this kind of non-violence, which is like embodied in uh, a sense of fearlessness and integrity and honesty. Um, I want to offer a little bit of a Buddhist framework around the Kingian practices. Um, And um, I'm going to offer that uh, through the Four Noble Truths. Yes, you wanted to ask something? Um, Yes, I'm sorry. I just wanted to say something about what you are saying, Kazu. Is is it okay? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, uh, um, we're just like trying to do a few things before lunch, but please go ahead. Yeah, um, I I find that you know often since I'm a child, um, I've always been the only uh, black person anywhere, um, and I find that nonviolence, like the way you were defining, is in many of those kind of environments, people actually think they are nonviolent. But for the oppressed, it's a very violent environment. So it's not not non-violence. But people have a hard time. I know when we've tried to talk about diversity, even in this sangha um, and many other sanghas, it's very difficult. Yeah. Talking about, they called it the tyranny of civility. Right, like in meditation communities and corporate offices, like we're not supposed to shake the boat, rock the boat, right? So even when there is stuff that we need to talk about around diversity or or whatever it is, um, we're not supposed to rock the boat. Just like keep it civil, keep it polite, right? And that can be a form of violence. And it's only non-violent for people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Oh, yep. So uh, before we go to the presentation, one thing, if anyone wants to move for the time of the presentation this side, if you cannot see, you're welcome to do that. Um, So from uh, the framework of the practice, I want to talk a little bit about absolute reality and relative reality, right? So 
absolute reality being that, um, like, like the great perfection teachings, that there is all, already uh, a ground that we are on. There's a ground that is holding us uh, where there is a sense of uh, innate goodness, where there is a sense of uh, the sacred in all beings everywhere and in ourselves. And there is also in this absolute reality teachings, there is a non-duality so that, uh, that we are not two, we are not separate, like we are deeply interconnected with each other. In the absolute reality teachings, um, we would say that um, there isn't anywhere to get. Like by practicing meditation, we are not trying to become somebody. We are trying to realize our true nature, which is already full of compassion, spacious, it can never be maligned, it is timeless, it is limitless. And so that's, that's the realm of absolute reality teachings. And it's incredibly important to honor those teachings. Like for me, I don't think I can even function in my daily life without the resource uh, of that view, of that, of that perspective of life, of that uh, openness that it takes me into, the vastness and the sense of holding that I feel from, from experiencing that. However, while we have that, we also have a relative reality where there are problems, there, is, there are issues, we, there are identities where I am a woman, where I am uh, an Indian person, I have a brown skin, uh, where there are real issues of uh, the way in which power is shared, right? Uh, there are real issues in politics. There is this real environmental destruction happening. So it's not like everything is perfect and let's bliss out in our meditation caves. We, you know, there, there is an, a relative reality. Within relative reality, I would even dissect it in two more parts, which is a healthy relative and a distorted relative. And so in this, in this relative realm, we are uh, using our skillful means to make the distorted relative healthy. And we are learning to also work to dance gracefully between two truths of the absolute and the relative. And to be able to hold that paradox at the same time and to honor both. And one of the mistakes I see in the uh, meditation, sort of the way the practice is thought, and, and I feel I have made that mistake in, in my journey of the last decade and a half of practice, is that sometimes I have used the absolute view to destroy the relative, to negate. So for example, someone mentioned that uh, we are in a meditation community right now, and everything is calm and peaceful. Everything is great. There are no problems. There shouldn't be any problems. And, but, and that, that is an absolute reality, too. Like, there is a sense of calm, and you know, there's a sense of grace that I can feel here. And at the same time, there are issues. And how can we hold both at the same time? is really important. And that's, that's, I think, where the real, like, juice of the practice comes from. And 
and to not use the absolute view as an antidote to destroy the relative because that is violence. And it makes me really emotional actually just seeing this last part. That the absolute is not violent. It is just so incredibly kind and respectful. And it's not violent. But sometimes it feels like the teachings are translated in a way where they do feel violent in destroying the relative experience. Uh, it's a little bit dense material, I'm, I'm, but I, I'm hoping like I'm communicating what I'm uh, is getting communicated. Okay. Exactly. So I could say, yeah, I can give you an example that I could I could come uh, to my meditation teacher, for example, and I could say that uh, uh, there was a microaggression that just happened on me as a person of color, and the teacher could say, "Yeah, but you know, only you can hurt yourself. Forgive and forget." Don't make a thing out of it. Actually, a good one is maybe you should meditate more. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe you need to like do a few more years of practice. Yeah, yes. Don't address injustice. Yeah, it it can. It I'm not saying it happens everywhere, but it, there is a potential yeah. for that to happen when these teachings, because they're such nuanced teachings that they're they, they're often mistranslated. Yes. Yeah. When I was in Japan, uh, I was living in a temple, and then I had to leave the temple, get on a train, go to the immigration thing. But I was wearing clothes that you wear in a temple. So when you do that, people ask you, where are you practicing? Where's your temple and stuff? So this guy said he wanted to practice his English with me, and he'd, he'd lived in America for a little bit. And I said, sure. And then he asked me about the temple. And then he said, he told me when he was a doctor, and when he was in medical school, something awful was happening. I don't know what it was. Some, one of his instructors, one of the classes was terrible, and he and his friends wanted to drop out of medical school which in Japan is even worse yeah. than here. It means you're, you're gone. You can't come back two years yeah. later. You know, you're done. And so he was really in crisis. So he went to Eiheiji, which happened to be the head temple of where I was practicing. Not, yeah. you know, anyway. So he went there, and they allow people, it's a big monastery, and they allow people to come for like a day and a half or two days, and they do meditation and do some cleaning and things, you know. And so he did that, and then while he was there, they, I think they saw that he was a young man really in crisis, and they said, this, this famous Zen master is coming here. Would you like to have tea with him? And he said, sure. And he had tea with the teacher. He didn't tell the people at Eheji or the teacher what was going on. You know, they just sat down and they had tea. But I think through the, especially through the presence of the Roshi, he was able to return to medical school and become a doctor. Now, is that fake? 
I mean, the, 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 the Zen master wasn't saying, hey, you know, uh, just meditate more. You don't really have a problem. I mean, what you're talking about, is that an example of what you're talking about? I, I didn't understand. Why did he drop out? He, he didn't drop out. He wanted to drop out because there was some, he didn't describe it, but there was some big problem in the, in the medical school in one of the classes he was taking, and he wasn't the only one that felt that way. The, a, a number of students felt that way. Right, right. I don't think there's anything wrong in him going back. Uh, yeah. I feel, I feel for me, uh, the example would be that if I have a sangha, uh-huh. and if someone comes to me uh, in my sangha uh-huh. and tells me that there's like a microaggression yeah. that happened, uh-huh. and that, I, yeah, for me, I feel like it's my responsibility to not just use the absolute view in yeah. that in But that you don't moment. think that the Roshi was doing that? The yeah, I'm not sure. It yeah. seems like I don't know what the problem was, so it's oh, hard okay. for me to engage yeah. on that. Okay. Uh, quick one, and then I want to uh, try to do this. Yeah. Just to very briefly comment, for me the um, distinction there is agency. If a person uses their own understanding mm-hmm. to operate in a toxic system, that's one thing. If they're being told that they need to, abrogate themselves through not-self, for example, to excuse violence of others. That's something entirely different. Yes. I um, ran across this. I have several dear friends who are ordained in the Theravada tradition, women, and they stayed for quite a long time in a patriarchal system that was very um, violent to their self-agency and to their ability to mature in the teachings and when they would protest they were told that it was the fault of their own understanding of not self to me that is a very clear example of what you're talking about yes and this is so important actually what you're speaking to about agency it's extremely important and I have received that feedback too about not self we all have especially as women maybe more uh, and yeah it's, it's really a distortion it's a big distortion in the teachings, and I think there is more work to be done. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to say something? No. Okay, okay. So, is there a clicker for this? Uh, oh. oh, here, okay. Well, this is just a PDF file. Is there a, um... it's a, yeah, generally the clicker seems to work with it. Um, let me see. If it's a, ah. It sometimes takes a second because it's oh, okay. new on your is it on or anything? I need. Yeah, it should be. Okay. Oh. Sorry. Do you want to? Oh. Oh. Ah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's try it again. Okay. Here we go. Let's work. Thank you. I'll do a full screen uh, and the view. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Can folks kind of see this? Uh, wondering where I should go. Okay. Uh, so I want to share a little bit about systems of oppression and the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> and uh, this is, of course, like not the classical traditional version, obviously. Uh, this is... Uh, my interpretation of it. Okay. So the first noble truth is life has inevitable suffering. 
or unsatisfactoriness, discontent, disease, or stress. Uh, and how does that show up in the relative reality? Uh, it shows up at the level of individual, interpersonal, institutional, or cultural. I'm just creating four major broad categories. And oppression shows up in our lives at the level of personal, which is one example of personal oppression is the inner critic voice, which is always criticizing inside you or telling you you're not good enough. Or, you know, uh, there's a interpersonal We've all experienced, we, we all just spoke a little bit about family <laughs> and growing up. And then there is uh, institutional, which is also something like we just spoke about, maybe a dharma center or maybe a school that we work at. Uh, and the cultural, uh, or cu cultural is really interesting. I, w I would say there's a cultural and then I would also say there's a systemic and the cultural is sort of the overall ethos that we are living in. And that culture itself, where I am not, um, where it's not safe for me to be a transgender person, that's cultural oppression. And systemic is the very systems that we are living in, the capitalism, the political system. And these systems are insidious. Like, they are affecting us all the way down to the personal. I mean, I have had systemic oppression showed up in a one-month-long meditation retreat. So it's all, like, deeply interwoven. And then this is a matrix of oppression. So, uh, and this is all to say the first noble truth, that there is suffering. <laughs> so uh, so some of, the, some of the categories of identities... Uh, and this is where I would not bring the not-self teaching. <laughs> so we do have identities around race, sex, sexual orientation, gender, uh, the sex itself, the class, uh, abilities uh, or disabilities, uh, religion, age, and many more. And so some of the isms that show up here are racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism, ra classism, ableism, religious oppression, and uh, adultism or ageism in the form of how we treat elderly people. Uh, there is a cause for suffering. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to read this quote. Uh, it says, oppressive systems by nature are constructed on the building blocks of structural inequity working across and at the intersections of target groups, prestige and privilege serve to create structures of a power. Uh, these systems maintain themselves through structural inequality, which is itself maintained by invisibility. So you have to make people invisible to maintain the structural inequality by suppressing and oppressing those that benefit, from the, uh, benefit the least from the privileges and power of the empire, dissenting voices are also suppressed, allowing for ambivalence. That is the turning away needed for the continuance of these oppressive systems. So as long as we are all turning away, things are, the oppressive systems are going to maintain themselves. And so once again, I go back to that hyphen in nonviolence. 
if you are neutral, this is a quote by Desmond Tutu. He says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. A lot of people say, I'm neutral. Not taking a stand is choosing a stand. And Alice Walker says, the most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they do not have any. So very, very, I, I love Alice Walker and her work and this quote. Um, some of the ways in which uh, some of the causes of oppression are uh, the five uh, sort of uh, known causes of oppression are exploitation, marginalization, creating a sense of powerlessness, cultural imperialism, and violence itself. And this matrix, it shows the target, uh, often who are the target communities that go through this. And also, this, uh, it talks a little bit about the forms of resistance that these target communities use to resist. So acts of civil disobedience against violence, which is the salt march that Gandhi did, was an act of civil disobedience. Um, and over here it says, that form of uh, violence inflicted on indigenous communities, refugees, migrants, um, colonized communities. Uh, J. Krishnamurti uh, says, if we can understand the compulsion behind our desire to dominate or to be dominated, then perhaps we can be free from the crippling effects of authority. We crave to be certain, to be right, to be successful, to know, and this desire for certainty, for permanence, this is interesting, for permanence, builds up within ourselves the authority of personal experience, while outwardly it creates the authority of society, of the family, of religion, and so on. It's really powerful, and it really touches into the internal and external ways in which oppression just like, you know, it like kind of just expands. And one of the most interesting pieces for me here is we crave to be certain. You know, uh, so much of this capitalist system is built around how we can create more certainty for a few, for a select few. And something like that has come up in a lot of conversations between Kazu and I is vulnerability, a willingness to, break, to feel broken a willingness to be not in charge, a willingness to enter the sacred chaos, a willingness to bow down and listen. Like this is the opposite of that. And there is a need for permanence. There's a need for control. And again, the dharma is like teaching us like how do we let go of that? You know, how do we let go and how do we like attune attuned to the energies around us? How do we tune in and like flow with that and honor that and respect that? Uh, third noble truth, there is an end to suffering. <laughs> um, the path to enlightenment is a path that goes against the stream. The Buddha called it patisothagami, which is swimming against the stream. And he also said something to the effect uh, if I remember correctly, it's like you're swimming against the stream 
the, the, the water itself, and you're also swimming against the other fishes which are going. So, so, you're, so it's both. And so, because the zeitgeist is trying to take you in a different direction. Um, and one of the ways to think about the possible end of suffering is intersectionality, like to realize that all these issues are deeply interconnected around race and education and sexuality and ethnicity. And how do we, uh, when we are trying to like, if I just care about gender, but if I don't care about uh, sexuality or class, like I'm not really uh, honoring the entire system. These are, this is also another example of the different uh, uh, levels of intersectionality. So the uh, fourth noble truth, the path leading to the cessation of dukkha is the noble eightfold path. And the eightfold path, as many of you have studied it for decades probably, is this. And I'll just go quickly into, uh, into some of these. The first noble, uh, for the first uh, uh, in the in the eightfold path is right understanding or right view, and I love this quote. It says, uh, "Diversity asks, who's in the room? Equity responds, who's trying to get in the room but cannot, and whose presence in the room is under constant threat of erasure." Inclusion asks, "Has everyone's ideas been heard?" And justice responds, whose ideas won't be taken seriously because they are not in the majority. And so I find these like very meaningful frameworks to think about when I'm maybe running an organization or running a, running a group. Uh, right understanding or right view is so important in terms of uh, Having, having sort of a sophisticated analysis of systems of oppression. And so this, this talks about how like violence escalates and it starts with acts of subtle bias like stereotyping, jokes, uh, you know, uh, intensive remarks or accepting negative information. It can go up to acts of prejudice and bigotry acts of discrimination, acts of violence, acts of extreme violence to the individual, and then it can even like escalate into genocides. And so we need to also gauge in our society, like this could happen even in our society if we are not tracking. Um, the second uh, in the Eightfold Path is right intention. And... Uh, the Dalai Lama says, be kind wherever possible. It is always possible. And I feel like even you could be putting, laying your body on the ground and protesting, and that could be done from a deep, deep sense of compassion, a fierce form of compassion. I love this picture by Banksy. <laughs> uh, he's uh, one of the most incredible graffiti artists. Um, Anonymous, mostly. <laughs> um, right speech. When I am afraid to speak is when I speak. That is when it is most important. Uh, very, very recently, like hardly a few weeks ago, my husband was at a conference and like five, 600 people were attending it. 
and it was a yoga conference, and uh, Patabi Joyce, who's considered to be one of the greatest yoga masters in the Ashtanga community, uh, there have been charges of sexual assault uh, by multiple women. And this was a five-day conference on Ashtanga yoga. Not once did anyone raise this, this issue. And my husband was like, I mean, there were panels happening, everything around Ashtanga Yoga, everything about the future of the community. And he was like extremely surprised, like, what's going on here? And, and then at some point, he had to raise his hand and he had to ask the panel, like, I'm curious that there have been multiple women who have spoken about sexual assault by the main teacher and what are your thoughts on this? And once again, there was like a, some answer, which wasn't like enough. And then he asked, like, can, he asked a couple specific questions. And, and he was saying my heart was racing while I was doing this because this is my community. And, and yet, like, I was just really moved that he, he did this because this is, this is like not doing it is the non-hyphen violence. And then at some point, the next day, he asked the organizers that as a community, can we take one minute of silence to acknowledge the women and offer our prayers? And it was very powerful for 500 people to acknowledge something they don't want to see. Um, George Orwell, in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. This is the this is the the day right after the election. Like Greenpeace put up this uh, banner next to the White House. Yeah. Um, so. One of the things around, sorry, before I go into right speech, I just want to bring in that in our Buddhist framework, uh, as many of you know, we have these four uh, sort of parameters to gauge right speech. And that is, is it true? Is it kind? And kind doesn't mean like you have to always, I mean, there's a, there's a strong intention of kindness, but it can be sort of bold as well and clear as well. So is it true? Is it kind? Is it uh, timely? Is this the right time to do it? And is it going to be useful? And so it's, 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 it's helpful to use these uh, when we are speaking. Uh, and this is right action, right livelihood. Uh, this is a very interesting way of thinking about it, like what I love, what the world needs. Th that where I can like support myself and that which you are good at and like finding sort of the sweet spot. <laughs> Yeah, so it can be, it, it nurtures you in some way. It can be financial, it can be, but you don't want to, because otherwise there's going to be a burnout if you're just giving and there is no sense of reciprocity. So what is the reciprocity and what kind of reciprocity would nurture you? 
Uh, also, live, li- right livelihood, like as I was saying, like working in the slums, working in the villages, like one of the things I realized is that sometimes we are working on issues which are very siloed, but it's helpful to have a more systemic understanding of what's happening. Uh, one of the classic ways to understand it is uh, an amazing, um, uh, would you say she's an ecologist, Naomi Klein? Uh, she 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 writes. Uh, she has this amazing essay called "Let Them Drown," and she's saying, "Yeah, it's it's really uh, quite pro- provocative." And she says that uh, in that essay that as as environmental scientists or ecologists, if we are only thinking about uh, saving natural habitats, but if you're not thinking about the poorest of poor and how this is affecting people, marginalized communities, then then somehow like the policy making will not, uh, yeah, will, will not have a systems thinking approach. And so, because the people who are going to be the first environmental disaster refugees, who already are actually the environmental disaster refugees, are like people from the poorest of poor communities, and they're the ones who are going to get affected most. So, so we need to think in, you know, again, intersectionality of issues. Uh, right effort in a gentle way, you can shake the world. <laughs> and so, and so, what? How much effort do we bring in our activism? And again, I've learned quite a lot from Kazu and some of his friends around this as well. Like, what are the ways? in which, because uh, one of his expertise is like how to organize protests and what do they look like and, uh, and what is the level of effort that we put into it. Uh, this is a, a quote by Audre Lorde and she says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. And so right effort also includes a deep sense of self-compassion and self-care for yourself. Uh, Right mindfulness. Uh, Joanna Macy talks about uh, the refusal to feel takes a heavy toll. Not only is there an impoverishment of our emotional and sensory life, flowers are dimmer and less fragrant, our loves less ecstatic. But this psychic numbing also impedes our capacity to process and respond to information. And really this quote talks about the psychic numbing that happens to us by living in this over culture, this mainstream culture. Uh, One of my dear teachers, she says, every day the world steals your soul, every night you learn to retrieve it back. And really, like all this information that we are receiving on the internet, on the, uh, the, the TV, the films we watch, like all these, in, some of the interactions probably in the office, like it's all cre- like adding to a level of debris in the psyche. And we need to be very thoughtful. And all that debris is making us numb. And so we need to be like thoughtful to see like what's really happening in, in our psyche, in our subconscious around all this. Um, right mindfulness, and this is something I, this is the charkhal that Gandhiji was spinning, and 
uh, I learned how to do this a little bit. <laughs> but it was like a very incredible like mindfulness effort. <laughs> it took a long while to get it. Right <laughs> um, mindfulness also um, So it also looks in the form of this. And this is in India, where a person was protesting against the British rule. This is in the United States. It also looks like this. It also looks like this. It also looks like the Tiananmen Square. This is in China. This also looks like this. This is uh, not not too long ago. These are friends of ours, uh, Alejandro and uh, Pancho. And this was during the Occupy movement. Yeah. And this was probably last year. Yeah. And and right concentration also looks like this. <laughs> and the last in the Eightfold Path, Samma Samadhi. So, so yeah, I just wanted to offer a slightly different version of the Eightfold Path. <laughs> Thank you. One of my friends, he used to say that the Buddha taught us how to sit and Gandhi taught us where to sit. <laughs> and I feel like there's something about using our practice to put our bodies where it matters, to put our bodies sometimes on the front lines, to put our bodies in protest, and to meditate at these places. Which is perhaps the, a great segue because we move some things around to move lunch up a little. So I think we're going to go right into the meditation. Oh, okay. Okay. So how long should we do? It's okay. Yes, please. <laughs> 